Okay, friends, the story begins. We have finished the song of the day or the songs of the day. And now we're going to dive into the mourner's Kaddish. This is very important. Um, the, the truth is, what, what I'd like to discuss today, this is going to be on page something, page 77. Um, and what I'd like to dive into today is the history of the Kaddish, which we've touched upon when we discussed Kaddish earlier. The history of specifically mourner's Kaddish. What makes a Kaddish a mourner's Kaddish? Where did the history of mourner's Kaddish begin? Um, and the significance, the relevance that it means to us. So let's start with the history of the Kaddish. The Kaddish was authored, as many of the prayers were, by Ezra, the scribe, and his rabbinical court. This was in the year or the generation following the destruction of the second, Besamekdash, the second temple. So to, to give the historical context here real quickly, just an aerial view of Jewish history, Jewish people leave Egypt. 50 days later, we receive the Torah. A little bit more than 40 years later, we finally entered the land of Israel. And we're still wandering Israel, by the way, for quite a while. It's not until almost 400 years later that King David conquers the um, conquers Jerusalem, declares it, declares it the capital of the land of Israel, and lays the foundation to build the Beit HaMikdash. King David didn't build it, though. His son Solomon builds the Beit HaMikdash. That lasts for 410 years. And then after that, it was destroyed by the Babylonians. The Jews are exiled to Babylon for 70 years. It was at this point, toward the end of those 70 years, that the story of Purim took place. But at the beginning of these 70 years, this is when Ezra compiled many of the prayers, including the Kaddish. I said earlier the second Beit HaMikdash. I meant the first one. I'm sorry. So Ezra compiles many of the prayers. In general, the purpose of prayer at this point, there was no formal prayer in Judaism. Judaism was not that organized before. Prayer was freestyle. At this point, it needs to be authored. It needs to be written. Because we don't have a Beit HaMikdash. We don't have a temple. We don't have that level of inspiration. Hebrew is not necessarily our language. We need an actual book. We need a text to refer to to make sure that we actually end up praying. And among the prayers that he had authored was the Kaddish. The Kaddish was authored in Aramaic. It's interesting because the Amida and many of the other prayers, most of them are authored in Hebrew. But the Kaddish is authored in Aramaic, which is the spoken language. Aramaic is what they spoke in Babylon. Um, it was for the next, I'm going to say... Hold on, let me, let me, probably the next almost a thousand years that Aramaic remained a Jewish language, probably a little less than a thousand years, seven thousand, seven hundred years, that Aramaic literally remained a Jewish language. What Yiddish had been historically for the Jewish people, so prior to the, or Ladino for the Sephardic Jews, um, prior to that, it was Aramaic. Aramaic is very similar to Hebrew. In fact, the Talmud says, I know I'm going a little of a tangent here, but the Talmud says, that when the Jewish people were exiled from Israel to Babylon, God was doing them a kindness that it was Babylon rather than any other land because Aramaic is so similar to Hebrew, at least they can acclimate to some level. The Kaddish, now why, why did Ezra author this prayer, the Kaddish? What was the context by which he authored it? The Kaddish talks about the greatness of God. 
right? Yitzkadal v'yitzkadash. Let him be great. Let him be sacred. It talks about God being holy and God being great and, and, and extolling the greatness of God. It really is a meditation. If you just read the Kaddish in English, it, 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 it's our, pref, it's our, our perspective of, of God. Why did Ezra author this Kaddish? Because this experience of God that we're describing in the Kaddish was something that we would emotionally connect to just by showing up to the Beit HaMikdash in Jerusalem. Just by showing up. You show up, you get inspired. And now the Beit HaMikdash is destroyed. We're exiled from our land. Judaism is not the same. And what we're essentially saying is that, God, we still believe that you're great. We're still going to say it. We're still going to proclaim, proclaim your greatness. That That's an incredible thing because we don't have that same sensitivity that we once did, yet we still believe that it's there. We know, God, that you didn't leave. We know that we just don't feel your presence as much as we once did. But we know that you're still there. We still have faith. Even though we're in exile, even though our temple has been destroyed, we've been expelled, and, and all the atrocities that came along with it, we still believe that you, God, are great, that you, God, are relevant. This goes so far as to say that the Talmud, the Talmud says, that every time we respond to the Kaddish, Amen Yeheshme Rabbah, right? Let his name be great, Yeheshme, which is the response that we say to the Kaddish. Every time we respond to the Kaddish, the Talmud says that God says, Why did I put these people into exile? He regrets it. He regrets it. These people still believe in me. They still know and believe that I'm here, even though they're not necessarily experiencing it. As vividly as they once did with the base of Mikdash, with the temple. God regrets the exile. Why did I do this? That's how great the Kaddish is. Rabbi Shneer Zalman of Liadi, who had authored the Tanya, once shared a, a very short teaching. This was in the Hayom Yom a couple days ago, uh, or maybe a week or so ago. He shared a short teaching explaining how when one responds Amen to Kaddish with passion, the angels in heaven are envious. And they'd be willing to give up their entire experience of whatever that may be like in heaven to participate in Amen and responding to the Kaddish. Which is crazy because what an angel is experiencing in heaven is... Is, is quite lofty. But a Kaddish is even greater than that. And they'd give up everything for that. The story continues that for the entire year after Rabbi Shiner Zaman had shared this teaching, entire year following, every time Kaddish was recited, people respond to Amen with an incredible passion, with an incredible energy. So this is the Kaddish. It's a very lofty prayer. It's a very sacred prayer. It's a very holy prayer. It's essentially an exile prayer. It, it wasn't written until we until the destruction of the first base of Mikdash. Which means the first the first uh, 
thousand years of Judaism, starting from Sinai, or even beyond that, if you want to go from Abraham, first 1,500 years of Judaism, there was no Kaddish. For half of Jewish existence, there was no Kaddish. Why not? Because we were living the Kaddish. We didn't have to say it. We now have to say it because we're not living it in the same way. Or perhaps we now have to say it because we anticipate reliving it someday with the coming of the Mashiach. That's what the Kaddish is. Where does the concept of reciting Kaddish um, in mourning come from? That's a later tradition. When the Kaddish was, was we often associate Kaddish with mourning. When somebody's in mourning, they say the Kaddish. Um, that's, that wasn't always the case necessarily. That was a later tradition. The Talmud tells, it's actually a Midrash, tells us of a story um, of Rabbi Akiva, famous sage of the Talmud, Rabbi Akiva, who again was several generations later than Ezra the scribe who had authored the Kaddish. Um, I would say, I'd venture to say maybe seven, eight hundred years later. No, more. Hold on. No, probably, no, no not that much. Um, maybe 500 years later. Right? There was no overlap. So Rabbi Kiva's walking around and he encounters this soul. Now, if, if I told you um, I saw this soul and it was talking to me. Um, either I'd be lying to you or or you'd think I'm crazy or, or one of the two. But that's because I'm not as sensitive or as righteous or as not in that space where Rabbi Akiva was, obviously, right? So certain people have certain sensitivities to things. And even though Rabbi Akiva did not have that beta mix, but again, he was a righteous man and he had that sensitivity and he experiences this soul who looks like it's in incredible agony. And he says, what is going on? It looks like you've been through hell. And he says, I have been. <laughs> now that you mention it, he said, what's going on? He says, I've lived a less than perfect life and I'm going through a very difficult time. I'm paying for it. So he says, what do I do? What do we do? How do we get you out of the situation? How can we, how can we help you? So he tells Rabbi Akiva, if my ancestors would, if my, sorry, my descendants would say Kaddish, that would be helpful. Huh. Rabbi Kiva ran to find out who his children were, and he let him know. Say the Kaddish. Your parents need it. And when they did, things improved. And we had learned from that Midrash that the Kaddish was a mechanism of keeping out of hell, essentially. Um... Now, what exactly hell is, by the way, in Judaism is a whole discussion for another time. We may have discussed it at some point, but that really needs its own class um, because we often think of these, you know, what, what the cartoons and what Christianity had, had painted for us. But hell is a cleansing process. I, I mean, cl being cleansed could, could hurt, but it's not necessarily punitive. It's certainly not eternal. Um. Rabbi Akiva and the soul was hoping that it wouldn't even be necessary, at least not to the to the fullest extent, through the Kaddish. The Arizal, who came much later than Rabbi Akiva, probably 
1200 years after Rabbi Akiva, but he was a famed Kabbalist, and he taught that the Kaddish not only keeps somebody out of hell, but it actually helps them ascend in heaven. <laughs> there's stories of, I mean, there's multiple stories. I've read a few of them of people who had certain righteous people reciting Kaddish for them. Certain rabbis who were uh, particularly righteous, they'd recite Kaddish for people. And the people came to them in a dream, came to those rabbis in a dream and said, you need to stop because I can't handle the elevation. You're just too holy for me. I can't handle that ascent. It's just, it's just too much. How does Kaddish benefit the soul of a deceased? So the, the truth is, it's not like a magic, like recite this prayer, recite these words at this speed, at this time, at this location, with the right amount of people, and poof, the soul has now ascended. It's not exactly how the Kaddish works. The way it actually works is, just the mechanism of it over here, this is important, is, again, what is the Kaddish? A Kaddish is your declaration that you still believe in God even though you don't feel his presence in the temple. That's an incredible merit for the soul of the deceased. Kaddish is the, the descendant basically has an advocate. Sorry, not the descendant. The, the deceased has an advocate on earth, a, a notorious advocate. Because he goes to the heavenly court and they say, look at the descendants you've left. Look at the children you've left. They're in pain of their, uh, you know, losing their loved one. And they still believe in God, even though they don't experience God in the temple. They have strong, solid faith. Especially, by the way, um, just practically, uh, uh, Kaddish often does come with a big sacrifice. You know, having to come to shul. When shul starts, at the shul schedule, not on your own schedule, that's tough. That is tough. And that is definitely a big merit for the soul. So it's not like a magic potion. Recite these words and poof, the soul as it gets elevated. As much as it is the soul, the, sorry, the descendants reciting Kaddish on their behalf. And it's, wow, on your behalf, people are praising God in a world where God seems absent. But they still believe. They still connect. Um, it's for this reason that it doesn't necessarily have to be limited to Kaddish. Any mitzvah you do for a loved one that represents bringing God into this world, praising God in this world, is going to help their soul. That's why there's a long-standing tradition. Um, there, there was a. We'll get to this in a second, but there was a tradition. Um, where only one person would recite Kaddish in the shul. And, and sometimes there's a tradition where one person leads the service if they're in mourning. And you're not supposed to... You're not supposed to fight for that position. You know, I want to honor my parent. No, I want to honor my parent. The, the the love of allowing... of making somebody else happy is a, is a wonderful merit for, for parents or for our loved ones. And that's essentially what the Kaddish is, representing God in this world. And there's multiple ways of representing God. And being kind to other people is another way of representing God. That's a very important, uh, important message. So where did the Kaddish start? Here's the interesting thing. 
the Kaddish, again, like we said, it wasn't always um, said by, um, it wasn't always said as a mourner's prayer. Originally, it was just a praise to God that we would recite with a minion. We know from starting from Rabbi Akiva, pre-Talmudic age, that it became a mourner's prayer. But if you look in the Jewish code of law, in the Shulchan Aruch, it doesn't talk about saying Kaddish at the prayer service. It talks about saying Kaddish at the funeral. So it became a mourner's prayer to be, to be recited at the funeral. When did it become a regular thing to recite it uh, uh, regularly? When did it become... Okay, good question. I see over here in the comment. Can Kaddish be recited without a minion? Excellent question. In order for Kaddish to be recited properly, it needs to be recited with a minion. Um, the word Kaddish comes from the word Kiddushah. And anytime there is an element of what we call Kiddushah, sanctifying God, um, it's done with a minion. It's done with the with with a congregation of God. So ex excellent question. Um, so at at a funeral, right? That was the original time of reciting Kaddish for mourners. Um, but when did Kaddish become um, become a when did it become a thing to recite Kaddish in a minion for mourners to recite it as a, in a minion? So here's the background. We mentioned earlier that there was a tradition and still is a tradition that the one in mourning leads the services if possible, if they're able to. So somebody loses a parent during their 12 months of mourning or 11 months of residing Kaddish. They are supposed to lead the service as the Chazin besides for Shabbos and, and, and holidays because there's no public mourning on those days. And if they're leading the services for their parent that has this appearance of mourning and we don't mourn on Shabbos to the extreme. Now, what happens is, unfortunately, you may have people who are orphaned and they're under the age of bar mitzvah. They can't lead the service. And they now feel neglected. How are they going to honor their parents? So that's when a specific mourner's kaddish was added in the service. It was done with the intention of accommodating children who were under bar mitzvah and didn't have the ability to lead the service. That's the history of the mourner's Kaddish. That's one of the reasons, by the way, that the Kaddish had been uh, recited in Aramaic uh, and continues to be in Aramaic, that even though this tradition predates uh, sorry, post-dates its authorship. Um, but one of the reasons why it's in Aramaic is because it's something that everybody should understand. Praising God publicly is something everybody needs to understand. That's one reason. By the way, another reason we mentioned that Kaddish is anticipating the redemption. Kaddish is anticipating the Messianic era where God's presence will be experienced as it once was in the times of the Beis HaMikdash. And in order for us to um, anticipate the redemption and get ready for the redemption, they're, they're, we kind of want to avoid prosecuting angels because they don't they don't like uh, they don't like when we have faith. <laughs> you know the story of Job. 
the prosecuting angels were aware of his faith and he suffered terribly because of it. They wanted to test him. Right? And that, that was the story of Job. Job suffered horribly. So we recite in Aramaic. That's one of the reasons we recite in Aramaic. It's it's God understands all languages. So maybe we should recite it in Hebrew in English, right? These days. Um we don't. But that, that would be an interesting thing. Um if you have your sitter with you, I want to share with you something interesting. If you look at this Kaddish, page 77. So the first line is Iskadalvi Iskadash Shmei Rabbah, right? Exalted and hallowed or holy be his great name. And then we say Ba'alma in the world, the Virachir say that he created with his will, but Yamlik Malchusein he reigns with his kingship. Okay, you see on the second line there, second half of the sentence, Vayatzmach or Right, may his redemption sprout forth, and may his anointed one, the Mashiach, come. Right, it's a prayer for Mashiach. If you look in the Ashkenaz version of the Kaddish, among the various traditions, there's there's slight variations of, of Kaddish. In the Ashkenaz tradition of the Kaddish, that line is omitted. It's not said there. Why not? So I, I've heard two different explanations. And they both, uh, the, neither of them are necessarily mutually exclusive. Some say that it was part of Ashkenaz tradition to recite it, but it was removed during the whole saga of Shabtai Tzvi. By, by raise of hands, who's familiar with Shabtai Tzvi? The whole Shabtai Tzvi situation. Okay, it's a whole story, but the, the short of it was in the late 1600s. Okay, you're familiar with it, right? Okay, so in the late 1600s, there was a guy named Shabtai Tzvi. He was a very charismatic Kabbalist, quite bonkers. <laughs> And he ended up convincing half the Jewish world that he was the Mashiach and that Messiah had been coming, has come. And he started doing wacky things. And and um, it got to the point that he'd been seized by the Turks for claiming that he was the Messiah. They compelled him to actually convert to Islam. And he ended up converting to Islam and it led to a lot of uh, pogroms and, and really devastated Jewish world. Um, th this was the final blow in, in the exile that had led to the birth of the Hasidic movement just uh, less than a half century later. But people say that when these atrocities had taken place in, in Jewish life, thanks to Shabtai Tzvi, people were kind of traumatized or triggered by hearing Mashiach. So they removed that line from the Kaddish. Right? May God bring his salvation and bring the Mashiach. Um, another explanation that I had read, and again, it's not mutually exclusive, is that you don't necessarily need to explicitly state the Mashiach in the Kaddish because the whole theme of Kaddish is what it's going to be like in the Messianic era. God reigning in this, in this world and God's relevance and God's presence and God's sacredness. This is what we're going to experience. The whole world is going to know God when Mashiach comes. So we don't need to, um, there's no need. There's no need to mention Mashiach. It, it kind of goes without saying. The whole theme is Mashiach. That's another explanation.
I was recently reading a talk from the Lubavitcher Rebbe about, and he was discussing the Kaddish. And he asked an interesting question. We recite Kaddish on behalf of the deceased. But what's the Kaddish about? Bringing God into this world. About life. You see the irony here? We're reciting Kaddish on behalf of the deceased. Yet the whole theme of Kaddish is the essence of life. The core of what life really is. Which is a relationship with God and God being relevant in this world. So if that's the case, we should say Kaddish for live people. Why are we saying Kaddish for dead people? And the answer that he gave, and I'm paraphrasing here, is sometimes what seems most dead can have so much life to it. And what may seem to be alive can actually be dead. And that's an important lesson. That somebody could not have a physical presence and not be material and be so lively and somebody could have the most materialistic lifestyle and be dead on the inside. And that's why when, when somebody dies, one of the reasons is we bury people. We don't cremate people. Cremation is singeing it and getting rid of the physical presence. Burying is manifesting the physical presence. And we want that physical presence here. But I'll tell you a story. I'll conclude with this story. I may have shared this story in the past. But the story goes that there was a man who had every year on his on, on Sukkot, the holiday of Sukkot, in his sukkah, he had a very lively sukkah, singing and dancing and, and joy, and, and his neighbors didn't necessarily appreciate it. His sukkah was not so fancy. <laughs> the guy had no money. He was not a very material type person. He didn't have a lot of money, and he would go around collecting people's leftover boards from their sukkah, and he'd build his own little shack. His neighbor had a beautiful, immaculate sukkah. It was large. It was fancy. It was nice. It was, And his neighbor couldn't stand the singing. It was ruining his peace. So he decided, he was a wealthy man, he decided he's going to go around next year, Sukkot, and buy or, or pay people not to sell this guy any leftover boards so he doesn't have a sukkah that way he doesn't have any loud singing and, 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 and energy and he's not going to get disturbed this year right a bit of an evil plot and this man goes around trying to buy a sukkah and nobody wants to sell their leftovers for him they were right and he was bought out this guy paid everybody not to sell to this guy he doesn't know what he's going to do um, he meets a man in the street who happens to have these extra boards and he buys the boards off of him miraculously. He was <laughs> moments before the holiday, he was able to get his sukkah together and he's singing and he's dancing and his, and the neighbor's like shocked. Like what? I, I thought we took care of this. I thought we got rid of this problem already. He knocks on the door and he says, what is going on here? I thought I bought everybody out. I thought you're not going to have a sukkah this year. Where'd you get this from? So he said, I didn't know what to do. I was walking around trying to figure out how I'm going to get a sukkah. I see a man with boards. 
And I said to him, what are you doing with those boards? He says to me, it's going to be your neighbor's coffin. I'm the angel of death. And I'm ready to, you know, take care of your neighbor. His time has come. And this is happens to be his coffin. So this neighbor who needs a sukkah says, do me a favor. The guy's dead already. <laughs> he's not living life. He's he's dead on the inside. And on the outside, his life looks beautiful, but he's dead. Just give me his sukkah. Give me the boards. I'll, I'll build the sukkah. And he doesn't need a coffin. He's already dead. And he tells him this, this to the guy. And the guy understood that his priorities were wrong. He was confused. And that's one of the lessons of the Kaddish, is that what may seem dead can actually have so much life to it, and what may seem alive can actually have so much death to it. And that's why Kaddish is a prayer about bringing life to the world, bringing God to the world, and we recite that for the dead. In other words, I mean, I put differently, death is, is not the the culmination of life. It's just a transition of life. And that life can often be much stronger. Sometimes life is stronger than just what meets the eye. Okay, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs>